Hi, I'm Democratic strategist Allie Lapp. And I'm Republican strategist Liesl Hickey. Welcome to House Talk with Allie and Liesl, where we dig into U.S. House races and the fight for control in 2018. Happy Election Day! <laughs> we are celebrating the end of the election with mimosas this morning and with our two wonderful guests, Robert Jones of GS Strategies and Molly Murphy with Anzalone List Grove. So first of all, we're, so what we're going to do today is we're going to go through hour by hour the polls that are closing and the races that each of us are going to be watching for some indication of how the night is going to play out. Um, so I'm excited about that. Before we dive into the first poll closings of the night, um, let me start by introducing Molly Murphy. We're so glad you're here, Molly. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in politics. Absolutely, uh, and thank you for having me. Uh, so I am a partner at Anzalone List Grove Research. Uh, this is now my 12th year polling, uh, and I started right out of college, actually. So when I was in college, I went to the University of Mary Washington uh, in Virginia, uh, was was very involved in campaigns and things throughout my time there. I was a poli-sci major. Always knew I wanted to work in politics. Um, and then really getting into polling was coincidence for me. Uh, I was looking for a job post-college and got an internship at a polling firm. Uh, one thing led to another, and here we are 12 years later. And Robert Jones, who has been a colleague and close friend of mine for many years now, when we joined forces at the NRCC in 2012, but you started politics long before that, and you and Allie are actually from the same coast. That's true. The great uh, Pacific Northwest. I got my start in Oregon, um, and being a Republican in Oregon uh, is a tough business, so you're set up for all the disappointment that comes with politics uh, doing that. I worked for Senator Gordon Smith uh, coming out of college in 2008 during his re-election campaign, um, and then kind of bounced back and forth between Oregon and D.C. Uh, worked mostly sort of for moderate Republicans, worked for Arlen Specter um, when he was in the United States Senate, um, and now work at GS Strategy Group in Boise, Idaho. We sort of uh, like to consider ourselves a blue state Republican uh, firm. We do a lot of work in the Pacific Northwest, um, done work in Illinois uh, and the Northeast for a long time. So I've uh, been there about four years uh, after I left the NRCC, uh, where I worked with Liesl for two cycles uh, doing the West. Uh, Colorado to Hawaii was my territory um, for all the house races for the NRCC. So you two have been in the thick of a lot of house races this cycle. Um, give me an estimate, like how many house race polls do you think you've been a part of this cycle? Oh, wow. So uh, GS Strategy Group, we are one of the pollsters for the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is a super PAC working on Republican house races that oh, I'm, we sure know who they are. <laughs> I'm sure you guys have discussed many times uh, on this podcast. I would expect that um, we've been in over 25 districts and probably done somewhere around 60 to 75 different surveys um, throughout the election so far. What about you, Molly? Yeah, I would say that that probably is in the range of where we are. So we do work for the House Majority PAC uh, and the DCCC's independent expenditure and then some work with Emily's List uh, and, and Citizens United. So just on the IE side, I would say we probably were actively involved in polling in 20 to 25 races and then on the candidate side uh, if you include the primaries we did have some house primary candidates that didn't make it to the general uh, I would add another dozen or so to that and so going into the election with our house candidates I would say we our firm has about eight or nine who are in a general election tonight great should we dive into the races so we, uh, we, we are going to be watching all of these poll closings tonight and, and trying to glean some information on, on with the early returns. The first state in the country that will close its polls tonight is in Kentucky, which they, you know, they have polling sites that close at 6 p.m. Eastern time, which is crazy. Like, that is an early poll closing. Um, and then there's a couple of different states that close at 7 p.m., including Georgia, South Carolina, Virginia, and Indiana. So the race that I chose to watch with this early slew is the actual earliest race that we'll, that we'll probably get numbers from, which is Kentucky 6. Um, this district has been top of everyone's mind this cycle. Um, I will say I was a little reluctant to pick Kentucky 6 because I think it's sort of unique. You know, it's a very, very Trumpy district. He won it um, by double digits. 
we have a unique Democratic candidate, candidate there, Amy McGrath, who was a Navy fighter pilot, and, and she has raised just an enormous amount of money. In the third quarter alone, she raised uh, $3.6 million, which is what some House candidates raise, hope to raise, right, for the whole cycle. Um, she also, you know, had some tracking footage captured of her, which made for a lot of really powerful negative ads against her. So it, it is unique, but I think if Democrats are are holding their own here um, and it is looking, you know, tied or close to tied, I think that's a good sign that we're going to compete pretty well in some of these Trump districts. Yeah, and I think this district in particular, Ali, is interesting because unlike some other ones we're going to talk about, Florida 26 or Pennsylvania 1 that are in really expensive media markets, these are going to be really, really well-known candidates. They're going to run lots and lots of advertisements. Um, everybody is going to know who Andy Barr is and know who Amy McGrath is when they go uh, into the voting booth or if they've already voted early. They, it was not a, not a generic ballot. This is a specific race about specific people. Yep. So, Lisa, what was your race choice from this first group? Uh, my race choice is Virginia 7. This has been a district that I have been watching the entire cycle. Allie, you and I have talked about this, and even I think when I told you over a year ago that this was one that I was going to you know, watch closely and that I was worried about, and you sort of uh, – I think we're hopeful at the time. You know, this has come down to being a tied race. Uh, Dave Bratt, um, you know, he's never had a serious race, so this is his first one. You guys have a great recruit in Abigail Spanberger. And um, I think that if Dave Bratt loses this, once again, a Trump district, that will set up a pretty scary night for, you know, for Republicans across the country. I think that's true. I think that both the Kentucky 6 race and Virginia 7 are also great examples of Democrats doing a good job recruiting candidates who are good fits for the district. And I think that that was some flack that Democrats maybe rightly or wrongly caught after 2016 was it was all about sort of promoting a state legislator or county commissioner into the congressional district, sort of boring career politicians, but both in uh, Amy McGrath and in Abigail Spanberger, you have these dynamic personalities, you have these strong security and defense backgrounds that I think are allowing some of these Republican voters to take them seriously uh, and give them a good look. Well, your um, partner, John Anzalone, was, he was on our podcast a couple of months ago. He said that he really felt like it was that sort of resume and background that gave voters permission to hear mm -hmm. more about them. And I actually, I think, that is, I think that's right. I also think that this race had some really interesting ads, Terror High, <laughs> that CLF ran against um, Spamberger uh, early in the fall. And, you know, I thought they were really pretty good at the time. So let's move on. Molly, uh, your next ra you chose also a Virginia seat, Virginia 10. I did. I chose Virginia 10. Uh, I think that this is an, unex you know, this is a very expected race to choose to watch tonight. Uh, at this point, it's Barbara Comstock. She is two-term Republican incumbent, uh, widely viewed, I think, up until Trump got elected as a moderate and a good fit for this sort of fiscally conservative, socially liberal district in Northern Virginia. Uh, but after Trump got elected, uh, she's voted with him 97% of the time. Uh, that is not a good fit for that district. And I think she really disappointed a lot of her constituents. This is a district that Hillary Clinton won by 10 points, while Comstock won it by six. Uh, I think if you look at any poll, Jennifer Wexton, her opponent, who's a state senator and prosecutor, uh, is up anywhere between eight to 12 and even higher. So I don't think that I'm looking at this race to see does Jennifer Wexton win? What I'm looking for is by how much. If she pulls it out by two or three points, I don't think it's going to be a great night for Democrats in some of these suburban college-educated districts. Uh, if she's able to win it by 10, 11, 12 points, uh, I think that that's a good indication of other suburban college-educated white districts that may have voted for Republicans in the past but are making a switch. And Robert, what race will you be looking at in this first group? Uh, the one that I have my eye on in this group is Georgia 6, which is I picked three special election uh, rematches of sorts or replays. Um, Georgia 6, because Karen Handel was involved in a very expensive uh, early 2017 special election with John Ossoff and 
uh, barely won it, and you guys have talked about special elections and how they are special. Um, and so I think it'll be interesting to see how Karen Handel performs. I think she's going to win, but again, I think it's a margin um, situation, as Molly mentioned with Virginia 10, where if Karen Handel can win by a comfortable margin um, in a race where uh, there's lots of other uh, campaigns going on, a lot of other activity, it's not just about her, it's not sort of this special election setting that puts the spotlight on her and her opponent. Um, Bloomberg's been really active in this race. Um, Lucy McBath, her opponent, is a former uh, Bloomberg staffer. And so I think this race will be indicative of sort of how much has the world shifted from early 2017 electoral uh, outcomes to uh, late 2018 electoral outcomes. Well, and that special election redo is a good segue to the next couple of states that will have poll closings at 7.30 p.m. Eastern time, and that's North Carolina, Ohio, and West Virginia. And so you're watching another race in this group that yeah. was also a special. Ohio 12, we were involved in the special election there um, that happened just in August um, with the Congressional Leadership Fund where we did the polling there. This is, in fact, a pure rematch. Uh, Danny O'Connor and Troy Balderson, uh, the Democrat and the Republican, going at it again. Uh, I, I saw one of your previous guests, uh, Dave Wasserman, tweeted an interesting statistic that there have been 41 rematches of special elections uh, in the same year in the general election. Only six of those uh, has the outcome changed. Um, I think this one is one that is still kind of a pure toss-up, though. You know, the, it ended three months ago with a thousand vote difference and they just kept campaigning um, and it'll be interesting to see how the different turnout makeup of the special versus the general uh, and sort of the top of the ticket influence uh, changes the outcome of this race if at all. And what does O'Connor need to do different here uh, to put him over the finish line? I think you're kind of looking at the Franklin County number. Right. I think that's sort of the key place to be. You know, he was, uh, I think, in sort of the 56 percent range there uh, uh, in the special election and uh, needs to get over the hump. I think, you know, that was kind of the key. He only won one of the four counties in the district, and that's going to be the one that drives him. That's where you're going to see a change in the turnout sort of from election to election. Well, I chose uh, North Carolina 9. I, uh, I don't think anyone thought North Carolina was going to be as competitive as it has turned out uh, to be the cycle. And North Carolina 9, that is the open seat where that Bob Pittenger lost the primary. Uh, earlier this year, uh, we have Mark Harris and Dan McCready. Uh, once again, this is a suburban Charlotte seat. And this is a seat, though, that Trump comfortably won. So, I mean, it's these kinds of seats that have created a lot of problems for Republicans. Obviously, all the retirements have created problems, but it's even seats like these that are Republican-leaning seats where Republicans have had to spend a lot of money. I think the edge goes to Harris just because of the nature of the district. And if all the Republicans come home, then, I mean, he should win, although I don't think it'll be by a large margin. But it's just these types of districts where uh, you guys, the Democrats, have been able to expand the field. I think that's right. And full disclosure, Dan McCready is a client of mine. Uh, so with that caveat, so I do love him and he's a great candidate. Yes, exactly. I think he's a great fit for the district. Uh, but I think that he has a background that has allowed this race to be competitive. And I do think that you're right. I think that for a district that Trump won so comfortably, I think two things have to happen. And I would apply this to a Kentucky six or to a Virginia seven as well. Uh, I think that the voters in this district have to come to the conclusion that the Democrat Dan McCready in this case is a different kind of Democrat who is not going to sort of fall into the national Democratic pablum voting record, things like that. Um, and I think that Dan's bio and background, he's a veteran, he's a small businessman, those sorts of things sort of give people that confidence. But I think they also have to view Mark Harris as not your typical Republican, but one who's just maybe a little bit out of step. He's a very conservative pastor. And as you mentioned, 70% uh, of the district is in the Charlotte media market. There are a lot of uh, moderate Republican college-educated voters where that type of profile just might not be the best fit for them compared to someone with a little bit more of a moderate record. Molly, do you have any insider tips on counties we should be watching in that district tonight? And, and like, as the early numbers come in, what should we really be looking for? Yep, I would look at Mecklenburg County. I would, I'm more interested, I mean, the margin there is important, but also the turnout numbers in Mecklenburg County, I think, will mean good things for Democrats because while that part of Mecklenburg did vote for Trump. It was by a narrower margin. Uh, but you also have the eastern part of this district, Robeson County, um, much more downscale, lower income, uh, much more, you know, sort of economically 
downtrodden and downscale and seeing sort of what that turnout level looks like. These are reliable Trump voters uh, and what the margin is there. If, if Dan can cut into the margin in Robeson County, uh, I think that that's going to be a sign for a good night. Great. Well, then at 8 o'clock, there are a ton of states that have poll closing time. So I'm going to highlight a couple of the ones that have competitive districts. Um, you've got Florida, you've got Illinois, Kansas, Maine, Michigan, New Hampshire, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Texas are some of the states that are closing at 8 o'clock p.m. And then the numbers are really going to be, you know, it'll be hard to keep up with all the returns that come in. So, Robert, let me start with you. What are the couple of districts in this big group of 8 p.m. closings that you think are going to tell us something about where the night's headed? Well, the first one, I think, is Kansas 2, which is sort of a microcosm of the open seat problem that Republicans have had. Uh, Lynn Jenkins retired in this sort of Topeka-based seat um, and in 2018. And so what happened is you took a seat that Republicans had won with you know over 60% the past two cycles and turned it sort of immediately into a toss-up. Paul Davis, who was a former gubernatorial candidate, um, in Kansas for the Democrats in 2014, uh, has been running unopposed and been sort of able to create a very moderate image for himself in a less expensive TV market uh, for the past year and a half. Republicans had a long, expensive primary, and as a result, had a candidate who didn't have a lot of money. And so now we have a toss-up race in a seat that Trump won comfortably and has been won comfortably by the congressional Republican nominee for a long time. So I think this is one that Democrats would need to win uh, to sort of get into that, you know, 40 plus seat uh, night, I think, is Kansas, too, would have to be a part of that group. Great. You also said to me earlier that you're really curious to see how some of the New Jersey races play out. Yeah, and the reason it's it's sort of more as a block, and I, I think California, Southern California falls into this, uh, some of the uh, upstate New York seats fall into this, is sort of think of them as blocks of seats, right, and that the parties, you know, sort of need to go uh, undefeated in New Jersey to have a good night, right? I think Democrats would need to win both New Jersey 3, where Tom MacArthur is a member, and New Jersey 7, where Leonard Lance is a member, to consider it a good night. I think, you know, if Tom MacArthur wins and, and Tom Malinowski beats Leonard Lance in New Jersey 7, that's sort of a wash um, mm -hmm. in terms of what the result for the night is going to be. So if you're looking for indications of just how big or how small the Democratic wave is going to be, you know, looking at New Jersey 3 and New Jersey 7 and saying, okay, Democrats won both of those. Now they're kind of, they're up a seat maybe from where they expected to be early in the night. Got it. Well, I chose two districts that are both tied but are completely different from one another. So the two districts I chose are Maine's 2nd District and Florida's 26th District. So in Maine, the most recent polling there had Republican Bruce Poliquin tied with Democrat Jared Golden 41-41. And because I had to pick one, a, a district that is weird and unique, um, Maine 2 certainly fits that bill because they have ranked choice voting, which has passed the voters several times. And there are actually four candidates running here, the two I mentioned, the major party candidates. But then there are two independents, Tiffany Bond and Will Hoare. And the way that they do this ranked choice voting is that you go into the voting booth and you can, I believe you can vote for just one candidate. You can also rank them. So if you're a big Democrat, you might vote for, you know, um, Jared Golden, number one, and then the two independents. And then you, you put Bruce Poliquin as number four. And it's very possible, if not likely, that the ranked choice system will determine who ends up winning this race and who the supporters of Tiffany Bond and Will Hoare put as their second, third, and fourth choices could end up making the difference. In the primary, the ranked choice vote did not get fully calculated until eight days after Election Day. So we may not know tonight or even tomorrow who ends up winning winning this race. But what I'll be looking for is if we are tied going, you know, at the end of tonight, if we are tied, I think Democrats are in pretty good shape there because I think the smart money is on the independent people who voted for one of those two independents putting Democrat Jared Golden ahead of the incumbent Bruce Poliquin. So that's what I'm looking at. Um, and this is a district Trump won 52-41. On the other side of the coin in Florida 26, down in Miami, this is a district Hillary won 57-41, but also essentially a tied race. The most recent polling had Democrat Debbie McCarcel Powell up 45-44 on Carlos Curbelo. And, you know, look, this is a district where it's simply a matter of whether or not Carlos Curbelo can survive um, that democratic nature of that district. And I think Democrats have a good candidate here. Um, Carlos Curbelo is a really strong candidate too. And, and you know, you've heard interviews with voters down there saying, well, I like Curbelo, but I just, 
I got to vote Democrat. I got to put Democrats in control. I, I just got to get rid of them. Um, and so how strong that sentiment is uh, in South Florida, I think, will be very interesting. And the last thing I'll say about this district, and I'm curious what you all have to say about it, too, is three months ago, I would have put this on our, like, this is our 50th seat to win. A year and a half ago, I would have said, we definitely win this seat back. <laughs> and then Corbello looked really strong, and it wasn't looking great. And now it's just tightened over the last two or three months, I think. It's gotten to be a pure toss-up. And I think that's where you've seen some of these races and districts sort of go back to their natural tendencies as we've gotten later into the cycle. People talked about the Kavanaugh effect and what happened. I think more than anything is that sort of drove the districts to where they naturally were, where you had sort of a, well, I'm skipping ahead a bit here, but where uh, Dana Rohrbacher, I think lots of people thought was defeated three months ago, um, is still not defeated with, you know, three hours to go, right? Um, and by the same token, Carlos Corbello um, is now sort of in jeopardy, and that has more to do with these sort of historical voting patterns of the districts than anything necessarily that's happened in the campaigns. And I think as we've watched uh, tough cycles for either party over time, that is what we've seen. That's what we saw in 06. That's what we saw in 10, is that districts do just start to go to what their DNA is. And even when you have great members, and I'd put Carlos Carbello at the very top of our incumbents, it is sometimes very hard to defy what the DNA is. And so if anyone can do it, he can do it. I still think this is a tied race. I think he has, um, you know, I think it leans to him. Um, but we will see if voters behave like you just said, that it just ends up not having anything to do with Carlos. It has everything to do with the president. And they just go um, their natural inclination. Yep, I think that's exactly right. I went through the same evolution you did, Allie, which was, oh, we're going to pick this one up very easily. Look at the spread. You know, he ran against a corrupt Democrat last time. He sort of lucked out in 2016 to, wow, no, he is uniquely popular. His numbers are very good for a Republican, even among Democrats. And this is just such an expensive district that it's hard for a challenger, more so than most other districts in the country, uh, to really communicate and break through. Uh, but, you know, Debbie Mercosell Powell has raised a lot of money. She's run a very good race. Um, Curbelo has as well. Uh, and so this is one of, I think, going to be one of the most interesting races to watch because I think it's so unique with such a good incumbent in Corbello and you don't have many districts this may be the biggest spread between his 2016 margin and Clinton's 2016 margin in terms of outperforming partisanship um I think that it will be very interesting. I'm not sure I could apply any lessons from a win here to any other races, but it still is top of my list of being most interesting. And Molly, what are the races that you picked in this batch to to really pay attention to? So I picked two races. I picked Texas 32. That is a suburban Dallas district, high income, high education. Uh, Pete Sessions, longtime incumbent. 2016 did not even have a real challenge. He won by 50 points. Uh, but this is a district that had always been very reliably Republican at the top of the ticket. Uh, Romney won it, for instance, by 15 points. This is a district that went for Clinton by one point. And so I think going into the cycle, this one, you know, I was personally very skeptical that despite this being one of those Clinton Republican districts, Pete Sessions has been there for a long time and it's just always been a good fit for the district. I was always very skeptical of this. Um, there was also a really competitive primary, and so his opponent, Colin Allred, former NFL player, came out, you know, drained resource-wise. Uh, and this is a relatively expensive district in the Dallas media market. Um, but this is close. I mean, the New York Times just came out with a poll that had Allred up four points. Uh, other polling I've seen has had it tied. Um, and Sessions really just has become sort of a symbol of what's wrong in Washington. Uh, and so I think this this is going to be a very interesting one to watch tonight to see if those suburban college-educated voters really do kind of vote to send a message to Trump. Uh, I'm also interested in what you guys think the Beto effect has on this district. Well, I think you'll see it a lot in turnout. Um, and, you know, especially as you look around the state, I think uh, the – Dallas suburbs, the Houston suburbs, Austin, sort of broadly speaking, right? If some of those margins start to shrink, I think you're going to see them shrink, not because Greg Abbott's in a close race, right? It's going to be because Beto has turned out people that don't traditionally uh, turn out and who maybe are just voting Democrat all the way down the ticket. Well, the one thing about this district, to, to Molly's point too, I mean, I've, I've always been really skeptical on this district. Allie's been talking about it for a long time, and she's been, she's been a 
pretty uh, ginned up about it, I'd say, and I, I've been skeptical on it because I've just thought a lot of these districts that did vote for Clinton by a point or two, not by large margins, I mean, they just, they're... Uh, their Romney performance was massive, like especially even when you look at a Texas 7. And so how do you go in and convince voters who have just been solid Republican voters for so long to go the other direction? But so this will be, I think, another one where if this goes to the Democrats, this could we're get, we could eventually be getting into very high numbers in terms of Republican losses. But I will say Pete Sessions, uh, his mantra was winners do things losers don't do. <laughs> so I think he's run a great campaign. And uh, he is a tireless campaigner for that district. Robert, he has some other good Pete-isms. Uh, make the big deal the big deal. Although I go. think that is uh, attributed also to the great Fred Smith of FedEx as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, Molly, you, you also chose a Midwestern race, too. I did. I chose Michigan 8. Uh, and I know you guys have talked about this race on your podcast. I think this is a really fascinating race to watch. This is, I think, thus far for the races I've chosen, the first district uh, that Trump won. He won it 51-44 in 2016. Uh, this is one that Romney won by a narrower margin. Uh, this is a, a race where you've got incumbent Mike Bishop, who is a, a strong incumbent. He was a state representative prior to serving, so he's represented this area for quite a long time. Uh, but then you have just a very good candidate in Alyssa Slotkin. Uh, she served in the Defense Department. She has earned endorsement from Republicans uh, who served with her, uh, who I think are, are sort of giving permission to some of those Republican voters uh, to give her a look. Um, and this is one where you've got part of this district is Gretchen Whitmer, the gubernatorial candidate's home base, and whether there's going to be some turnout effect that helps Slotkin there. Uh, I think that'll all be really interesting to watch in one of these kind of Trump districts and, you know, by seven points, whether this one can flip because you've got a good candidate here. She's been ahead in polling consistently, yeah. public mm -hmm. polling, internal polling. So to me, I, I will be watching this district too. And frankly, I'm hoping for a good, solid lead for her all night long. Like, I, I would think, you know, I want to see her leading this race by three, four, five, six points. Mm -hmm. If it's, like, right on the margin 50-50, that makes me a little bit more nervous about how we might do in some of these Trump districts. Yep. Okay, I chose Pennsylvania 1 as my district in this bucket. And, Robert, I think this is going to end up being the most expensive house race this cycle. Oh, definitely. I think it's got over 10,000 gross ratings points at a very high uh, cost per point, you know, which is how we measure and uh, purchase advertising as political consultants. And it's going to be, I think, darn near $15 million uh, right up there with Colorado 6, which you know well. Right. So, I mean, Pat uh, Brian Fitzpatrick, I mean, he is the best candidate that we could have in this district besides his brother who represented him <laughs> before him mike fitzpatrick but that you know pennsylvania has been bad for republicans to cycle overall uh, obviously redistricting really hurt us here and retirements hurt us here and we did not fare well in the special election i think that deflated some folks here but this is a race that i have always held out a lot of hope for because Brian Fitzpatrick, I mean, once again, one of the best members of Congress that we have. He absolutely fits the district, and he has the uh, sort of moderate problem-solving approach that I think these voters in these types of districts require. Yeah, and I think this is another one going back to Michigan 8, where we're talking about the top of the ticket. This is a, a district that's going to have a pretty uncompetitive top of the ticket, both at the Senate and gubernatorial levels here. Right. And so Brian Fitzpatrick, who has overperformed um, a poor top of the ticket, you know, ahead of him in the past, is going to have to do it again because I don't think Lou Barletta and Scott Wagner are going to be really competitive on the Republican side at the top of the ticket. Yeah, not a lot of coattails there. <laughs> well, and then as we move on to the nine o'clock hour, we've got a number of other polls that are uh, states that have their polls closing. So Arizona, Colorado, Minnesota, Nebraska, New Mexico. New York and Wisconsin all close at 9 p.m. Eastern time. So I chose a pair of districts that uh, Trump carried, both of them. Um, and I think how Democrats do in, in these places, I think, will be pretty important to know, like, what, what that overall Democratic number is going to be. So Minnesota 1 is in southern Minnesota. This is the old Tim Walls district who should be elected governor tonight, I think. 
Um, and, you know, it, it's a district that did go for Trump pretty heavily, 53-39. But from some of the reporting I've read, you know, they, they may have gone a little south on Trump, particularly on some of these trade issues. So it may not be quite as Trump-friendly as, you know, let's say the northern Minnesota district. Um that that is that is up for grabs as well. So this has been this race has been tied in every poll I've seen. Um, there's been over ten million dollars spent in independent expenditures in this race, and frankly, I think there's been some of the nastiest ads of the cycle here. They've really gone on the culture war here. The ads have featured Colin Kaepernick, the immigrant caravan, um, and they've really they've really gone after Democratic candidate Dan Fian here. The Republican is a guy named Jim Hagedorn who ran and lost in 2016 to Tim Walls. So I think this race is a total toss up. I'm really curious to see how this how this one plays out. I agree. I think this is a very interesting one to watch. I think that there are a couple districts in Minnesota, this being a good example, that defy, I think, a larger perception that Minnesota is largely a blue state. Um, this is a very blue collar district. This is a district that Tim Walls only you know narrowly won last cycle, and so Hagedorn is coming in having almost won this in 2016, uh, and you know just given the nature of kind of the the culture clash in in the communication in this race, I think it just reflects that there is a conservatism to voters in this district. Um, earlier this summer, this did not look like an especially competitive race, but I feel like as Fian has run a good race, it's gotten closer and closer. And so I'm surprised that it is a toss up at this point, and I'm very excited to see what happens. Well, Minnesota is a bright spot for Republicans in some ways, because I think the, obviously these are two best pickup opportunities and one and Minnesota eight, although could easily be canceled out by losses Mm -hmm. in the Minneapolis suburbs. And um, Robert, we were just talking about how Minneapolis, how much money did you say has been spent in the Minneapolis market? Well, I think the market overall has to be over $30 million probably between the four races. But, you know, this is another block of races where I think Democrats really have to go three and one here. I think anything less than going three, winning three out of these four seats is a bad result. Um, just because of what you said, I think Minnesota eight is a pickup for Republicans. I think that's sort of been the trend all along. Two and three have been trending against uh, Republicans in terms of uh, Jason Lewis and Eric Paulson, the incumbent Republicans in this Minnesota one race uh, will really decide it, which I think is why Ali chose it. Minnesota eight defied us. For several cycles, so I'm happy to see it going into the R columns. We, but we paid a lot of good money to Duluth TV stations over the years. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then the the other race I chose was uh, New York 19. Um, Anthony Delgado is the Democratic candidate. He is running against John Faso. Um, there was just a poll that came out of the field two days ago for the New York Times where Delgado was ahead 43-42. Um, this is I, I, I chose two nasty races for this <laughs> nine o'clock period. This has also been a pretty nasty race, frankly. Um, Delgado is African American. He was a music producer and rapper, also a Rhodes Scholar, mm-hmm. and went to Harvard. Uh, that doesn't get highlighted in the ads as much. But they've really gone after him on on the rap in in this district that is, you know, I think ninety percent white. Oh gosh, yeah. Um, so th- there's been some uh, there's been some ads that have been pretty pretty nasty. Delgado has maintained at least a tie or even been ahead in, in the polls. So, you know, I'm hopeful that that's not going to sink him. Um, one of the things I saw that was really interesting in the New York Times poll is that Delgado is ahead 53-25 with voters 18 to 29. So, uh, you know, a young vote turnout here is, I mean, it's important to Democrats everywhere. This race certainly very important that uh, that the young folks get out to vote. One thing I would look for, uh, look, talking about this New York Times poll that you're referencing, is it, it was 43-42, but only had 8% undecided, which indicates that 7% is going to a third-party candidate. Um, Diane Neal, who was a star of a, uh, an NBC show for a long time, is running as an independent candidate. I think the third-party candidates are going to hurt Delgado ultimately and take more votes from him than Faso. And so I think as you see the early returns come in, if that third-party number creeps up over 7 8%, I think it gives John Faso a better chance to win. And New Mexico, too, which once again, not one that mm-hmm. I think anyone wanted to be on their radar. No, definitely a open seat problem uh, example. Again, Steve Pierce running for governor here, where I think actually that retirement 
is the reason we could also win the open seat. Um, I think Steve Pierce, being the former member of Congress running for governor, not likely to win the gubernatorial election, but likely to win this congressional district and could pull Yvette Harrell over the line in a race where she's sort of, I think, been tied or even trailing by most polling uh, that I've seen. And so is this a Republican district that ultimately ends up voting Republican or can social uh, Torres Small kind of overcome the, the natural inclination of the district. Is this the most complicated name of a candidate? <laughs> well, I, I've heard it pronounced like a nickname, like Soshi. So yeah. I just like that. Soshi Torres Small. And by the way, she's looks so cool. Like yes. I, her ads, she just seems like the nicest, most down to earth, coolest person. And Congress can definitely use more cool people. So I, I'm for her. I agree. I was not expecting this race to be competitive. It is such a Republican district. Um, but I think that she, this is a great example of hard work and a good candidate fit being, re- you know, rewarded. I think she's outraised Harold by five times. I think she's outraised. Most of your candidates have outraised Republicans by five times. That's fair. That's a a good point. She's also, yeah, she's very cool. Her her ads are all very much about either local issues like water protection, which I think is a good place to be if you're a Democrat in a Republican seat, or on her value of being independent and working with anyone to get things done. And then Harrell, they've been running a race, not just her, but outside groups, have been running against her as being this insider who's been looking out for herself, striking deals that she's personally profited from. And that's the type of contrast that I think just works in a district like this that otherwise will vote for a Republican. So I think that's where the candidates on both sides are really going to matter because otherwise I don't think there's any reason that you know Republicans should be having to defend this seat. So question to you all. Do you think that after the 9 p.m. poll closings that the Democrats could get to 218? Is there a chance? And what is it? Look at my yeah, I, I, I think it's possible. I think it's possible. I think we could be right on the precipice. And then with states like Washington and California and Nevada still to come in, um, where there you know, are some seats that Democrats are favored in, um, I, I think by the time we start getting some real, some of the elections in the 9 o'clock hour being called, I think we could have a really strong sense of whether or not this is going to happen or not. And before we leave the nine o'clock hour, Lisa, you you picked Nebraska too, which you know, frankly, is a district I don't think a lot of Democrats are counting on winning um, after the primary result we had there, where former Congressman Brad Ashford was defeated. But you chose that. I'm curious what you're going to be looking for. Yeah, I mean, I think exactly the I, my sense is that Democrats got the wrong candidate uh, in this race, and I actually think they're they've gotten the wrong candidate in many races. But this is one of those times where they have a Republican-leaning district. There's a strong incumbent in Don Bacon, and you really needed the right kind of candidate. Uh, Kara Eastman is too liberal for this district. I think Don Bacon was able to put this district away, which is, once again, took a lot of pressure off um, other districts that, that he was able to, I think, put himself in a, in a good position to win this one. If for some reason something really strange happened here, um, I think alarm bells should go off. So, any other predictions for the nine o'clock hour? Go ahead. Do you think there's a chance? Yeah, I do. When I look Does at that, mean everybody can go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no can will. we or will we? <laughs> right. uh, so I actually, when I look at the states that are closing after nine o'clock, uh, I think that it is certainly possible that we will Democrats will have already taken back the House, or we will at least know if we are taking a strong majority, if we are picking up upwards of 35 seats, I think we'll know by after the polls close at 9 o'clock. Because if you look at what closes after, you've got the California districts, obviously, you've got Iowa, some very good pickup opportunities there, and Washington. Um, But Nevada, those are holds. Uh, You know, I don't think we expect to really lose those. And the other districts that we'll talk about here moving forward, I don't think that there's just the sheer numbers to suggest that if we're having a wave election where we're picking up by a wide margin, that we'll still be worried and counting those, you know, into 10 and 11 o'clock. Well, Molly, as uh, as the 10 o'clock uh, polls close, you, Iowa is one of those states that, that closes at that hour. And I think the races that you found interesting were Iowa 1 and Iowa 3. What are you going to be looking for in those? So I, I'll start with Iowa 1. And, and in some ways, these are similar-ish districts uh, in terms of, you know, 
Iowa is a very white state, so you know neither one is particularly diverse. But I think both districts have gone sort of in opposite directions over the last few cycles and maybe trending that way. Iowa one is one that was pretty reliably democratic for many cycles. Bruce Braley held it, uh, and that was a, a contributing factor. But it's also just a very uh, blue collar, heavy union participation in the eastern part of the state uh, that was always a good, you know, kind of electorate for Democrats. And it was a district that wound up going for Trump by four points after going for uh, Obama in 2012 by 16 points. So one of these Obama Trump districts that we were all scratching our heads about after 2016. Um, Rod Blum. He does really nice ads. He comes across as a very good fit for the district in his ads, but he's a relatively lazy campaigner, hasn't raised much money, is wealthy, not spending uh, much of his money. And then you've got Abby Finkenauer, state legislator, young, very dynamic candidate, very interesting, um, with very limited exceptions. She has been doing very well in the polls, and I think most people expect her to win. Um, I still think that, you know, whether she wins by five or seven or one will really tell whether Iowa kind of is going to stay a purple, you know, sort of swing state or if it's moving more towards just being Republican. Uh, Iowa three on the flip side. Uh, oh, really sorry. fast on Iowa one before we leave that, and I want to get Robert's thoughts on this. So I feel like Iowa one is one of those districts where we saw a pretty big sugar high post Kavanaugh, and I feel like there was some actually uh, hope on the Republican side that maybe this race was looking a little bit better for us, but I think perhaps it has come back down to earth a little bit. I think that's true. I think more than anything, this one just shifted really dramatically in everyone's thoughts about it, right? I think Rod Blum was uh, considered a loss in early 2017, uh, came back and then was, you know, he was going to win because he had good polls after Kavanaugh. And I think it's now settled probably where it was the whole time. This is kind of the trouble and uh, challenge of prognostication. It was probably a toss-up for two years, and we moved it around uh, into different columns, but it, it ended up where, where it probably was the whole time. Right. Okay, Iowa 3. So Iowa 3 is the western part of the state. It has Des Moines and the Polk County suburbs. Um, it is more educated than the eastern part of the state. And so while it's been, you know, it was held by Leonard Boswell for quite a while, a Democratic hold, but it sort of has had previously gone more Republican. It was a little bit harder than Iowa 1 for a number of years. I think because it is a more educated part of the state, I think you might be seeing it trend a little bit more back to sort of that democratic inclination. But David Young uh, is the incumbent, um, very conservative. Uh, and you've got Cindy Axney uh, challenging him, who's raised lots of money, is running a really good race, and has high favorables. Voters really like her. Um, the most recent few polls has it tied, but with Axney up a little bit. I think that that was another one that in the sort of Kavanaugh you know, post-Kavanaugh polling, that got much tighter. It felt a little bit more uneasy for Democrats and that it seems to have kind of gone back a little bit. Um, there's also a governor's race at the top of the ticket that I think is energizing people, and early vote is encouraging thus far for Democrats um, to the extent that we put any stock in early vote. Well, Iowans have been voting for a long time. Mm -hmm. They have one of the earliest mm -hmm. votes in the country. Yep. All right, so moving on. So Robert, you chose Montana at large. Yeah, Montana because, again, going back to my special election uh, focus, is that um, Greg Gianforte, who had a very public dust-up uh, with a reporter right before his special election uh, day um, in 2017, um, had a lot of early vote uh, that was already factored into that race. A lot of people think that um, he won after um, his uh his fight with uh, Ben Jacobs, but um, many people had already voted. And so now to say, okay, this has all been factored in, everybody knows who Greg Gianforte is, knows what they're voting for, uh, potentially going to have a uh, Democratic uh, top of the ticket and John Tester winning by a couple points. That's what a lot of the polls have indicated here. Um, and polling's really been all over the place in Montana. It's been tied. It's had uh, his opponent up five. Gianforte's been up five. So I'm just interested to see in a state um, at-large states are, are sort of interesting and different than every other district, too. So when you have a whole state voting um, on both the Senate race and the congressional race, you can get very interesting outcomes. Yep. Let's move on to 11 o'clock p.m. And we've got a bunch of states that vote by mail. So I think there's like upside and downside as we're watching these because, 
usually, at least I'll speak to my home state of, of Washington, which are, and that, that's where the two races that I've chosen reside, Washington 8, the open seat that Hillary carried by three points, and Washington 3, uh, Jamie Herrera-Butler seat that nobody thought would be competitive. My understanding is most of the counties will release some, uh, you know, everything that's been tallied, everything that they have and that can be tallied pretty shortly after 11 p.m., and then that'll be it until the next day. So at least we're not up waiting till 1 a.m. <laughs> for more more tallies, but I know we're all going to wish we had more data coming out of those two races. Um, to me, what I'll be looking for is, you know, does is Kim Schreier able to carry that district uh, uh, in Washington 8? I think if she does... Um, I feel really confident about my earlier prediction that Democrats will carry all open seats held by a Republican that Hillary won. Um, and in Washington three, you know, even if I, I think we'll know, my guess is we'll know before the polls close here how Democrats are doing in some of these longer shot districts. So I may change my mind about following this district <laughs> at 11.01 p.m. But you know, I think no one thought this would be competitive. A bunch of Democratic outside groups jumped in at the end. So did the Republicans to try to save Jamie Herrera-Butler. Um, so I'll be curious to see, is this thing as close as we all think it could be? Yeah, I think Washington 8 is one that I've had on my list, you know, in sort of the parlor game of if you could know the outcome of one election prior to Election Day to let you, you know, guess what the overall night was going to be like. This is the one I've had my eye on for 11, uh, for a while. So it's too bad that it comes at the 11 p.m. hour. Um, and also too bad that uh, Washington is not as great as Oregon and does not require everyone to postmark their ballots uh, by Election Day instead of, and allows them to, uh, excuse me, allows them to postmark their ballots by Election Day instead of uh, dropping them off before Election Day. So um, Oregonians will be in bed, hopefully, with uh, Governor Newt Bueller, but Washingtonians will be up late watching congressional races. I bet the Portland media market did not think they were going to be getting a lot of outside spin for <laughs> congressional race this cycle. <laughs> I know that KATU was very happy about it. Though. I'm sure they were. I'm sure they were. Let's go on to California. And Robert, uh, you've been doing a lot of polling in Southern California, so we can talk about the several races there. But, but I, I do feel like, I mean, Southern California has been the place where – Democrats felt like, one, it was going to secure their majority. Now it might be a place where they run up their numbers. But there are some interesting races here that I feel like Democrats just won't be able to get, which I which I was pretty down on California all year, and I've, I've come back around. But it's sort of like what's um, what's up is down there and what's down is up in a way. Yeah, I think the two uh, toughest races for Republicans sort of at the beginning of the cycle, potentially, you know, were Steve Knight and Dana Rohrbacher of the Southern California ones. I think they're sort of uh, well-known members who sort of have um, middling uh, image ratings with voters right now, and the district sort of shifted against uh, their natural tendencies and voted for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump, um, despite sort of Republican history. Um, and now I think actually those are the two most likely for Republicans to win of the Southern California races. I think that um, California 39, which is an open seat with it, that Ed Royce uh, retired from, uh, that has Gil Cisneros versus Young Kim, um, looks to be kind of edging a little bit uh, towards Gil Cisneros, but I think Young Kim can win that seat. And then I think Mimi Walters, um, you know, in California 45, who one with, I think, almost 60% in 2016, you know, is now sort of in a toss-up situation, has been trailing in a couple of New York Times public polls that have come out. So I think this is the, the fluidity of Southern California in which either party could go 4-0 or 0-4 um, will allow us to kind of sort of stay up and look for something interesting in California. Well, as everyone likes to say, it'll all come down to turnout, right? And and no nowhere is that more true, I think, than Southern California. I do think with the exception of the open ISA seat, California 49, all of these other Southern California races are real toss-ups that are impossible to predict. And um, whether or not younger voters and non-white voters show up in the numbers that Democrats want them to, I think will just be the, the determinative factor here. Um, it's it's hard to say. I, I think early vote numbers have looked pretty promising for Democrats so far, but we're not going to know until today what that overall composition of the electorate looks like. Yeah, I'm looking at California 10 moving up north really quick. I saw a very interesting early vote statistic there from the great folks at Political Data Incorporated PDI, um, which tracks all the ballot returns in California um, that of, I think, almost 80,000 votes that have been returned in California 10, there was a one vote difference between Republican ballots turned in and Democratic ballots turned in with almost 39,000 from each party. So it's going to be very close. 
Well, that's the race you chose, Molly, was California 10. Tell I us did. why. I, I chose that one because I think that it gets overlooked because Southern California is a lot more interesting, and I think that there's more of the, you know, kind of Republican-held Clinton seats there. This is, though, you know, a, a district that Hillary Clinton won. Um, it is a rural district. It's in the Central Valley. Uh, Jeff Denham, a longtime incumbent, uh, he only won by about four points last cycle. Hillary Clinton won this race. He has always been a very strong campaigner, and he's always held on to good popularity ratings uh, in this heavily Hispanic, uh, you know, kind of agriculture rural district. Um, I was very dubious that he would be vulnerable this cycle. Uh, I thought that this would be one of those districts where he just held on because he was popular and sort of did right by his constituents. Uh, but recent polling really shows that he's got a, a tight race against TJ Harder, who has raised a lot of money and run a good campaign against him. Uh, so I think that, again, this comes down to turnout. Uh, I think slightly differently than just younger voters, I think this is where in midterms, you see a lot of these kind of less educated Hispanic voters stay home in midterms that turn out in presidentials. And so whether they turn out in a midterm when they typically don't, I think that will make or break the difference for Jeff Denham. Well, so we should, just since we're still in California, we should talk really quickly about California 21, because Democrats did start to dump some money into that district at the very end. Once again, I think that's a district that's been totally out of Democratic reach. David Valadeo, another very strong incumbent. But to that, I mean, I think it's one of the like lowest turnout districts in the country, mm -hmm. and in the midterm, even worse. And so a lot of young Latinos. But was there some energy that you all saw around this district? Or did you just have so much money, Allie? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I think it is a district that Democrats want so badly because it goes so heavily for Democrats on the presidential level. And I do feel that if there's a time to take a shot at a district like this, if not this year, then never, right? Then maybe when David Valadeo retires. Um, so there was a lot of resources invested in um, registration, in turnout efforts, and some in persuasion as well at the end. And, you know, this could be one that maybe, you know, surprises us all because it, it is a district where in order to get polling information, you, as in all districts, you have to assume what turnout's going to look like. And so pollsters, and you guys speak up here, you all do an excellent job of looking at what turnout has typically looked like in a, in a district. Does Donald Trump inspire his younger Hispanic turnout in this district in a way that we haven't seen before in midterms. We don't know. We'll have to see what things look like today. Well, you know, today, um, I, I still think it's a long shot for Democrats, but if you're going to invest in a couple of long shots, this district is about as good as any because of the, of the Democratic nature of it in a presidential year. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I, I think Valadeo is a strong is a strong incumbent, uh, but I also think that sometimes you do have to run for those reach seats. Um, and I realize I misspoke. I said T.J. Harder. It's Josh Harder. T.J. Cox is running right. against David Valadeo. I'm confusing my Central Valley Democrats. Uh, but I do think that you know if it feels like you can make this in play or make this tighter than you've seen in the past, I think that that is just you know there's there's running for the election you have coming up, and then there's also running to try to mobilize some of these voters who are Democrats and getting them fired up uh, in this environment, I think, is a valuable investment. Robert barely poured any orange juice into my mimosa, <laughs> and I wonder if he's just preparing me for later tonight. Yeah. <laughs> that, that could be. Well, so my final question for everyone, who's going to stay up till 1 in the morning for the Alaska result? <laughs> is Don Young really in trouble? I think Don Young, as I was doing my research for this uh, podcast, was elected uh, three years before I was born, so I will not be staying up. <laughs> I will probably be up at 1 a.m. checking other returns and may check in on this one, but I don't know that I would expect this one to be. Republicans just put money here, right? Like, why? I was surprised to see that. Lisa, yeah, I, I, I mean, I was surprised to see that. But I, but I think what starts to happen in this sort of cycle, when the map is what it feels like is constantly expanding on you, and there are all these fires popping up all over the place, that it does in a way, you just feel like if I don't do something and they lose, and if I, if I would have done a little bit, they could have won. I mean, you just have to factor all those, those things in. Um, I think I, I think that's why we saw 
uh, money go into South Carolina one. Uh, obviously, we saw people rush into Florida 15, which I still think a Republican can't hold in very Republican district. But still, there are a lot of unknowns out there. Turnout is a big one. And it's scary when you start to get a lot of polls back that look tied in a bad environment. So you feel like you got to do something. Yeah, and I think as you, we were talking about some of the markets that have been saturated at some point is what does another uh, $500,000 in the Minneapolis market that's seen $35 million do? It's like, let's give it to the good folks of Juno. <laughs> <laughs> that's as good a reason as any. Well, Election Day is always one of the longest days for political operatives. Some people go watch movies. Some people, you know, try to find ways to just check out of the day. Hopefully, our our run through the election night will help our listeners get to those all-important election results faster. So thank you guys for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us.